This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. Welcome to another episode of Unsung Heroes. I am uh, your host, Dr. Saba Maruf, and I'm super excited today um, to share some um, new voices um, to you all, my listeners. But um, I'm very excited to have some of my friends on today, and talking. We're going to be talking about some really um, important, uh, a very important topic. Um, but again, for our returning listeners, um, this show is all about inspiring stories about uh, people in our community uh, making an impact in some unique and individual way. And I'm super excited. Um, we've been getting more followers and listeners. Um, so please, you know, continue to share. And um, and we're just happy to have, have you here. Um, but joining me in the studio today is my, ho- my co-host, uh, Calvin Moore. Hi, hey, Calvin. Hey, what's up? Hey, okay, so as I learned last week, yeah. Ramadan Mubarak. Very good. Yeah, I'm learning. This is great <laughs> stuff. I'm feeling good. Well, awesome. Ramadan, well, as, and I didn't realize that that's what Sultan had mentioned. Ramadan Kareem. Yes. Is apparently the response. We don't actually do that. In, right. But well, because anyway. I'm black, it's okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and we're also joined by our sound engineer, the... Uh, ex- sound en- engineer extraordinaire, Jess. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good, how are you? Good. Good, so we are super, I'm super excited today. Um, we're talking about a very important topic, um, which I think, you know, is pretty crucial. It might be a little bit heavy at times, um, but I'm very excited because I think that um, it's vi- truly, I mean, as our name implies, very inspiring work. Um, we're going to be talking about supporting um, and caring and for refugees, um, you know, that come into our country. And this is kind of a pretty hot topic right now, given, you know, everything that's going on politically and everything that's in the news. Um, and I'm very blessed because I have some amazing friends who have been doing a lot of work on the ground for a few years now. Um, so we have with us Dr. Aisha Fatima, uh, Lubna Al-Khayat Hadahat, and Reem Akkad. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Um, so just briefly, um, just about each of them, um, Reem is a board member and one of the founders of SARN, which is a Syrian-American rescue network. Um, I always get that name wrong, but <laughs> Syrian-American rescue network. She's been actively working with Syrian-American rescue with, with the network to raise awareness about the refugees' plight and to organize efforts for helping Syrian refugees arriving in Michigan. And... Um, her day job is that she is an interior designer and she's award winning. Her work is amazing, simply amazing. Um, and she has actually lived in Syria for almost a decade of her life. And she is one of my childhood best friends. I'll just put that in there. <laughs> we were neighbors and best friends like in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Growing so up. welcome, Reem. So happy that Thank you're you. here. Thank you. Um, Lubna Al-Khayat Hatayat is a licensed professional counselor. Um, she's a national board certified counselor and a certified clinical trauma professional. She received her MA in community mental health counseling and is currently finishing her PhD in mental health counseling. She's worked with Access in the past um, through their Victim of Torture program. And she currently works in private practice at the Oakland Counseling Center um, and is a board member for women for the uh, Women for Humanity organization, which is a nonprofit organization that funds schools for refugees and um, provides college scholarships for refugees. So welcome, Lubna. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Silva. And Dr. Aisha Fatima is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Beaumont Children's. She is... um, she also is a chair for Women's Physician, Women Physicians for Humanity, and she serves as a vice president um, of Syrian American Rescue Network, and she oversees, uh, which helps oversees, oversee the re- resettlement of Syrian refugees in Michigan. Um, and she's a strong advocate for gender equality and women's empowerment and believes that as a physician, she is in a privileged position to advocate and raise awareness. And um, 
again, I'm so, so excited to have all three of you here. Thank um, you. And you all three have, I mean, just personally, you know, very inspiring friends now and women. And I'm just excited to really share your voices and your stories. Do you ever so, have people you. on you just feel like, I am not doing anything with my life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Every week. I'm like, I can share your story. <laughs> Inspire all of us. <laughs> right? Does yeah, it kind of right? seem like that, yeah. Calvin? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's not like we're not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. But yeah, it's, far, it's but... still, it feels like that way when you're reading someone's bio. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> So much done. Yeah, for sure. So let's, um, you know, get right into it. Um, Reem, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started getting involved with refugee work and how um, the organization, you know, you're uh, you're part of kind of the founding board, how that organization kind of became a reality for you? Sure. Um, It all began... Uh, back in 2015, April of 2015, with the arrival of the first Syrian refugee family here in Metro Detroit, a bunch of uh, dedicated individuals were coming together trying to figure out how to help these people, how to help the people that have lost everything um, and and uh, have been through so much trauma. And that went on for a couple of months, and the efforts were pretty chaotic. But after that, uh, we decided to try and organize to be able to benefit these families a little bit more. And so in September of 2015, a group of us, um, including Aisha here with me, um, came together and uh, formally um, created the uh, Syrian American Rescue Network. And from that, our efforts really grew and grew. And now we've got um, a bunch of different committees. We have a lot of programs and we've been able to help over 2000 refugees here in Metro Detroit area. Wow. Actually, and how many refugees have we welcomed in this area? Um, it been- it's a little bit over 2,000. Okay. So we've been able to help um, almost. The majority. Yeah, the majority of them. That's a good deal of people. And, uh, so, so Reem and Lubna, you've, you've both, uh, I think we were saying this offline, that you've both lived in Syria. Uh, and obviously that's, that's a country that's in the news every single day. And I think there are assumptions about what it must be like and what the people must be like. And I'm sure you deal with a lot of those um, those stereotypes or, or fears or concerns on, uh, on the part of people here. Um, but tell us about the people in, in the land of Syria. Just uh, just kind of, I guess, humanize the story for us. Uh, you know, what, what was it like living there and, and what are the people like there? Um, well, actually, what people don't realize is that Syria has always been multicultural, multireligious. Um, it's it's always been a secular government. Religion doesn't really feature a lot into, you know, social interactions. So you'll find somebody who has um, friends and acquaintances from all across the board in terms of religion and ethnicities. Um, it was really um, a place of uh, harmony um, from people from all over. And uh, growing up, it was also very safe, which is a huge contrast to where we are at now. Mm-hmm. Um, you could walk in the streets two, three o'clock in the morning, and it was considered actually one of the safest countries in the world. Um, so to go from that to um, seeing where all the destruction and the damage and um, everything that people are going through is just absolutely heartbreaking. And, and they had, there were some really positive things going for the country. There was, yes, there was some corruption. There was poverty. But, you know, we also had free education um, up, up to the university level. Um, you know, there's some uh, subsidized health care. So we had some good resources and people were getting by, which is, you know, a complete contrast to what's happening now. Yeah, that, it's, an, it's an interesting thing that you said there that the, the government is, you know, it, it's secular. And I think that there is this perception in America that, you know, this this regime is, you know, it's it's Muslims and, and all that. But you're saying it's a secular government that has essentially done what it's done at this point. And so that's I think that's a good thing for people to to hear and know because here in America, guess what? We have a secular government. These kind of things can happen, and you don't have to have a religion attached to what's going Absolutely. on. Absolutely, so, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but that, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Lipna, what was your experience? Yeah, yeah I would add, like, I would agree with uh, Reem exactly the way she described it. It's, um, I lived there when I was going to college. Um, what I, I did my uh, bachelor degree in psychology. And it's a very, very beautiful country for anyone who visited the country that you can't help but to fall in love. Um, I actually lived in, uh, me and my parents are from Damascus, which is also known uh, the city of uh, uh, the Jasmine City. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just like a beautiful place. 
safety is like you can walk women we can walk like at midnight and, and you can't you don't worry about your safety at all so um yeah to go from there to now what you see now yeah it was like there is the side of the there's always the the the, uh, the regime was like uh the pressure of the regime there is F, it's there there was no democracy at all but there the the beautiful people the historic uh sites um it's it's a very rich very rich country well actually my parents visited there um in the nine, late 90s and um, some of the kind of, you know, when you get married in our culture, then, you know, you, you get like all these, your mom kind of passes on some of her gifts, some of like her silver and things like that. I have a, some beautiful silver with that filigree work, mm-hmm. a candle, I think, holder from Syria, those specific to, um, um, oh my gosh, Aleppo. Yeah. They have that in, I mean, they have beautiful art and very specific, right, talent that's specific to certain um, cities and towns, I think. And then it was just so heartbreaking to have, you know, hear Aleppo in the news so much recently. A lot of the historical sites were destroyed there. And it's a it's very heartbreaking. Yeah, that hurts. I I majored in history in college. So anytime I hear about that, I'm like, yeah. And, you know, Damascus is actually the oldest inhabited city in the world. So there's a lot of history there. Yeah, there's Um, there's quite a bit. And it's it's important to three different religions as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, my gosh. Wow. So. <clears throat> so we talked, you know, a little bit about what it was like in Syria now, and we've had more than 2,000 refugees that um, have come specifically to the Michigan, right, to Michigan. Mm-hmm. What about nationally, actually? Do you know? Do you happen to know those numbers? I think uh-huh. there are about 4 million now. And uh, U.S.? No, oh, no, no not you, in the U.S. Oh, inter- you mean national in, in the U.S.? Oh, no, what did you, four million, go ahead, I, you can go with that number. I, I meant international, not yeah, national. Oh, no, way yeah. no, 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 okay. not here, not here. Maybe Canada. No, 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 no. <laughs> four million, I think she was referring to the number displaced. of Syrian displaced. refugees that oh, have been yeah. displaced yeah. externally, and they're over four million now, yeah. Wow. I mean, it's um, a whole country. I know the people. last year it was 10,000. That's what I recall, 10,000, but I think in that that number is from last year, so I'm not sure where the updated number stands now. Okay. So what are the, I mean, you guys are very familiar with, I mean, just the what happens when families come here for the first time and what are their needs, I guess, when they first arrive? And you mentioned, kind of Reem, too, that you, um, you realize that they needed so much. So, and that's kind of, I know, what started the help start. Well, basically, when they arrive here, they arrive here with nothing. Not only do they arrive here with nothing, but they have a debt to pay back to the government, which is their airline tickets. So already a family of Mm. eight or nine already has a $10,000 debt that they're expected to start making payments towards, uh, you know, a little bit um, after they arrive. So they already have this debt. They arrive in a country. um, They have absolutely no idea what the system is like. They don't speak the language. And a lot of their children have been without education for a couple of years because they have been in these refugee camps. And so you might find um, a 12th grader who's really only at 8th grade level or ninth grade level. So when they arrive here, um, their immediate need, obviously, is housing, um, finding shelter for them that's affordable to them. And that is something that um, might be able to uh, they might be able to continue to paying uh, rent for. Um, once we have uh, the housing, what we try to do is make sure that um, the furniture that they need is available. So uh, we have a warehouse where we collect essential items for them so they aren't paying out of their assistance money um, for those essential items. And just so everybody knows, these families really don't receive any special treatment over the rest of us, with the exception of just assistance from the resettlement agencies for those fo- first three months. And it's just very basic assistance after that, they're expected to be completely self-sustainable, which is a bit of a tall order. Um, and so that's why that's where we come in. We try to um, make sure that um, their journey to self-sustainable, self-sustainability is, is efficient and is, is doable for them. So once we've been able to um, help them find shelter and uh, help them with essentials, uh, we get into the other items, um, such as finding them jobs, um, helping them. Uh, helping their children with education and those who want to pursue um, university level education will help with that. And then we get into looking at the trauma that they've been through, um, through our um, monthly health workshops 
And then also really looking at life skills and seeing how can we bridge all of these cultural differences? How can we make them more aware of um, what life is like here in the United States? So it's our, our services are really all-encompassing, and we try to meet all of the needs. And, then, and the nice thing with a newer organization or a younger organization like ours is that we're able to morph and um, kind of see how we can where there's a gap and we can meet that um, we can meet that need there. I just wanted to add a few things to what uh, Reem was mentioning. So um, these so per person they get nine hundred and thirty dollars and that's it. So um, and then they have the support for the first three months. So I can't imagine how someone is supposed to um, you know get a job, learn the language. <laughs> Get a car because in Michigan there's no transportation. Get car insurance, everything in three months, and be completely um, self-sufficient. This is and because after, as I said, as we mentioned, that after three months you're on your own. So if son wouldn't be there, they would have had such a hard time. So, and I was researching about how even for someone who is willing to move to a different country, like they have planned the move for years. Even for those people, a move takes them two years. Even knowing the language, it takes them two years to settle. So I can't even imagine how you just throw them in a place and then they're supposed to pick up, you know, everything and start. But I can tell you, our our refugees, is, I have never seen anyone as resilient as um, them. So um, it, it's it's they have lost everything, but they are just ready to pick up, you know, from where. They left and start all over again. So very resilient people. They've gone through a lot, but they are so ready to start a new life. Um, so the mo- major things that we actually struggle with is transportation. So um, cars is a big issue. And then trying to find them um, affordable um, branding spaces that because – just in the last two years, we've seen before Dearborn was fine, but now because as the refugees are trying to, because Dearborn you can walk to a place and mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's for them it's like heaven, you know. So I we get we get um, messages from all other states that these refugees want to move, but if they move, they lose their um, you know their benefits, oh. so um, they can't move. But um, we are really having a hard time finding them uh, rental places in Dearborn because it's all saturated. Mm-hmm. So some, a family that we helped get a house two years ago, um, the rent was uh, 1100 and now next door um, it's 1600 So it's actually helping the economy in one way, but um, we are struggling with, um, you know, the – prizes and the rental spaces and all that stuff. I, I almost feel like, okay, so I was raised in the military and when you move, for a kid especially, it's like, you know, I knew every four years we were moving. So for me, I was like, I don't want to make friends really because it's going to be torn away from my friends. So in a way, moving, resettling just as a natural process mm-hmm. of life is somewhat traumatizing. Yep. And I believe that we had somebody mm-hmm. on here several weeks ago that talked about uh, being a refugee, you're already traumatized where Absolutely. you're coming from and then where you're settling you're also there's a re-traumatization mm-hmm. of having to settle, having a language barrier, not having car, having high rent, having to be on your own after three months, not having the assistance that you had when you got here, and then also having a general suspicion on the part of the the culture in Absolutely. a way okay. um, yeah. must and, be very very difficult. And um, the language barrier is huge. Um, we SARN has been providing ESL classes. We have three different locations and we have weekly ESL classes for the adults, not for the kids, but for adults, because it is the most important thing. If we want them to be self-sufficient, they need jobs. For the jobs, they need the language. And um, you and when I did research, um, if if a person studies 10 hours a day, you know, the language, it'll take him three full months. And these people, while they're working, trying to learn the, you know, language. And um, we have had some very talented people. We have um, a vet, we have a um, mechanic, we have um, hairdressers, we have very talented, different kinds, um, you know, uh, people who cannot get a job because of the language. Um, and there's one who has been learning the language for about, he, he goes every single day, an hour, 
for the last six months and uh, just to get his license and he can't because he has to be extremely proficient for that. Hmm. So the, it has been a big struggle. So then what uh, – I mean you said part of what you do is finding people jobs. Uh, from what you're saying, it sounds like people who might have particular expertise are finding jobs to sustain them that are probably far beneath what their pedigree might be. Absolutely. Uh, so what kind of jobs are are people landing in when, while they have this kind of language barrier and cultural barrier? So um, most of them are blue-collar jobs right now. So um, they are ready to accept anything that mm-hmm. comes um, their way. Um, and they, um, they actually, once they, they will take whatever and then they'll move to the next step. So, um, uh, so they're very, as I said, very resilient, but very hardworking as well. Um, and I had, I spoke to one of them last week and, um, he found a job, but he didn't have a car. So he used to just drive, he used to bike <laughs> to work. So mm-hmm. it's hard in winters, but you know, um, you just have to get by because, yeah. um, you know, as I said, everything is so connected. If you don't have transportation, how are you going to go to the jobs? So um, I wish Michigan had better transportation. You know, that would have yeah. been really yeah, helpful. I got a lot of comments on that one. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other show. Sure. But so, for sure. Okay, so you, we've talked about what, what SARN does, and, and I think you're doing very, very important work. Um, but I think that a lot of people don't know of all the people and all the organizations out there that are doing this kind of work. So what are what are some other organizations that are doing similar work or work that's ancillary to what you're doing right now? So um, I'll name a few. Um, so we do work with Zaman International, which is an amazing mm-hmm. organization, nonprofit organization. And um, when initially, um, the so when the refugees come, it takes about two to four weeks for their food stamps to kick in. So they would actually provide hot meals till the food stamps would kick in. Okay. Um, they also help us a lot with the uh, ESL classes and women empowerment. And uh, they have been actually help, um, providing sewing classes for the women. So um, they have been sewing that they can actually sell and, you know, support themselves, which is actually beautiful. Um, we've had uh, internet. Um, Islamic knowledge of uh, Islamic House, House of, of Knowledge, knowledge. Mm-hmm. yes, in Dearborn. Uh, they've been doing a lot of uh, the same. Is we that ha- uh, Elahi? Is, is that the, the imam there? Uh, Elahi? Oh, no, okay. Anyway, not sure, yeah. Sorry. Um, but they, has, they help us out. So when they come in and we don't find them housing, um, we actually, um, they stay in the hotel. So during that time, we actually, um, Islamic House of Knowledge was helping provide meals. So, because what happens is they get that $930, and if they spend on anything, it comes out of their 930 So, what we try to do is we try to provide everything so that they can save that. So, um, starting with uh, when they come in, we provide them with welcome boxes. So, each box has everything that you would need to start a house, including linen and pillows and kitchen supplies and um, bathroom and um, you name it. So it has everything what someone would need to start a um, new, fresh life. Um, And then we – so the welcome boxes and then after that, um, it's basically case by base. So somebody needs a refrigerator or washing dryer. Um, so I usually post and then the, we have a beautiful community with so mm-hmm. much of support. Um, and then furniture is usually donated. We don't try not to spend uh, money on new furniture if you can just use donated. Uh, mattresses, by law, we are supposed to uh, get them new mattresses. So, That's right. Um, so <laughs> Absolutely, right? We're going to get this used hotel mattress. That's probably not a good idea, right? <laughs> I, w- I would just like to add um, to what um, Aisha, Aisha had said is um, about the organizations in response to your question. I wanted to l- let you know and let everybody know that we don't do this alone. We are a nonprofit. We are based completely on volunteers. We all have our other day jobs. So this is not something or an effort that we can do all our, on our own. And we've actually partnered with close to 100 different organizations mm-hmm. to be able to plug into their resources and see where we can help refugees and how we can use their resources to benefit them. And um, another one of the organizations that has been an amazing partner to us is the Balkan Center. Mm -hmm. They've just been there for us from day one, allowing us to use their facilities for ESL classes, even donating one of their buses for our transportation system. 
Um, the Roper School also featured us in their charity talent show. And so we were able to take the funds from that in addition to the donated bus from the uh, Balkan Center and then create a transportation program where we can take refugees to and from our um, our different programs. So we've, and then the MMCC, the Michigan Muslim Community Council, mm-hmm. also has been a partner. I mean, it's just so many different organizations. It's just really difficult to um, list them all now, but or remember all the acronyms like I yes, know, I know right? Like, what yeah, does I that know. stand for? I know. <laughs> Have to mention a few. Axis um, has uh, also been a huge support, and um, I cannot. Um, I will kill myself if I don't mention Women's Physician for Humanity, <laughs> which is my organization. So. <laughs> and then Lubna, um, women. Yeah, I'll just, um, I'm just going to add to the mental health services. I know uh, the American yeah. Chaldean Council, they provide also some mental health services for, mm-hmm. for refugees. Oh, well, then Samaritas. Uh, Samaritas, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had and, his vice president on my, on my show yeah. a few weeks ago. He was a really good guy. Yeah, and I'm just jealous of Aisha. I'm going to add my organization, <laughs> <laughs> the Women for Humanity. We actually, we, we're not uh, doing much in terms of the services like, uh, like uh, all the organizations that they mentioned, but... Um, we we have been doing some education in schools, public schools, and like who are serving refugees and uh, like um, how how to how to deal with like, almost cultural sensitivity. How to, how to deal with refugees? What are their needs? What are the things that you need to be sensitive uh, to? And we did a workshop for uh, the refugees themselves. How how to expect what to expect in, when you come to America? What are the things that you need to be careful uh, about? Like also cultural um, mm. training. So, Lumna, tell us, um, you know, we mentioned this, but um, mental health needs of refugees, if you can talk a little bit about that and, you know, just describe a little bit the level of trauma that they've been exposed to and now dealing with, as well as kind of, um, you know, some of the parallels. Um, you know, you've worked with Iraqi refugees in the past, so you, and that's another important point, is that a lot of these experiences are common to um, previous groups that have come you mentioned um, like kind of uh, I can think of, you know, I know a lot of Bosnian families that came mm-hmm. in the 90s after the war in the Balkans and very, very educated um, people. I know um, professors of veterinary medicine that, you know, they came here and because of the language and different, you know, licensure and all that kind of thing, they can't do that. And so exactly they're, mm-hmm. you know, do more blue collar jobs. But I guess right. kind of some of the parallels in terms of the mental health um, needs mm-hmm. and the level of trauma. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I've, so I worked with uh, not only the the Iraqi refugees. I worked with many asylum seekers also from different uh, countries in uh, from Africa, and um, yeah, there are a lot of similarities. When when you're exposed to war, um, like you're so you're exposed to like witnessing uh, the bombing, losing members of your family or people that you know, uh, imprisonment. A lot of them have been exposed to torture. Um, or watching someone they they liked, uh, loved one being uh, uh, tortured or killed. So the amount of trauma is huge. Sometimes, like you look at at these people and and just like how how can you go keep going on? But as as Dr. Aisha mentioned, they have a, a lot of resiliency. Um, uh, some of them will experience uh, uh, PTSD symptoms, depression, and anxiety. And I keep telling. Uh, them and and those who work with them, this is only a natural reaction to the amount of trauma they're exposed to. So not only the pre pre migration trauma with all the losses, and then the trip, just like the transition. Uh, sometimes it takes them two years, uh, being the, for the resettlement to the process, and then after they they come here. Uh, Aisha and uh, Reem talked about all the stressors they need to do to, to deal with, like learning the language, learning how to drive, finding jobs. Um, and you have to address the basic needs before addressing their mental health. When someone is like cannot find a job or cannot provide for their family, it's it's almost very hard to work on their trauma or work on their uh, PTSD symptoms or um help them to heal. So you have to prioritize their needs and, and work accordingly. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, uh, I think that another thing that comes out of that is uh, the idea of, I think people use this as a, as a buzzword 
differently than probably people in the you know psychology and psychiatry uh, area of work. Was I can't remember disciplines uh, might use the word uh, wellness as one of those. Uh, so, Dr. Aisha, can you tell us about uh, family days and wellness workshops that you run? I figure that that's kind of part of you know what you, what you were just talking about as well. Um, so, actually, there. Uh, the program actually started um, for children. That's how I started with Wayne State University students, okay. med students. So I actually work with um, med students from Wayne State, from Michigan State, and um, uh, University of Michigan. All. So um, this is a very extensive workshop which runs for about four to five hours uh, once a month. And um, we um, have a variety of workshops, actually about uh, six to seven workshops going on simultaneously at one time. Um, so uh, our therapy workshop, um, I think uh, she's also one of our friends. Um, I'm going to be having her on too. <laughs> yeah, led Shazia. by Shazia, Shazia Siddiqui. Um, and right now we have tons of other licensed uh, art therapists who help uh, with the kids. So we have, um, so what I do is I divide um, all the kids into four groups, and uh, then they rotate through each workshop. Um, and we started with the music therapy with Central uh, Michigan University. Dr. Stark is the one who leads that. Uh, we have the university students who come and help us out, and the children love it. You know, um, so they, they get to play some instruments, and it's absolutely amazing. Um, so uh, we just started with dance therapy um, recently, and uh, what kind of dance is it? Like ballroom? Is it tap? Is it, <laughs> it hip hop? Is it is it you know what is it? It's just <laughs> random, I think. Okay. <laughs> so freestyle, it, yeah, freestyle. That's just it. flailing the arms around like right, right, cool. exactly. <laughs> um, and then we also started with self defense uh, okay. classes uh, by Heidi Sproul. So she is just absolutely amazing. We did we um, got a lot of complaints. Or uh, I shouldn't say complaints. The kids were actually reaching out to us regarding uh, bullying. Mm -hmm. Um, And it looks like the parents were not addressing it because um, when we, we, you know, confronted the parents that looks like your kids are telling that, you know, they're being bullied and, you know, how come you're not reporting to the schools? And the parents were like, at least they're going to school. You know, right. so you know, so, bigger fish to fry right now. <laughs> so I can feel that. I mean, I imagine like they don't want to. They know, don't want to. What, the muddy the waters, or like they want to exactly, make a fuss. Like they exactly. don't want to make it seem. They, like, they're worried that what if they're sent back? They don't want to, you know, create issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They absolutely don't make don't waves. Mm-hmm. That's pretty yeah. much it. Right. So that when I heard that, I'm like, we have to do something. So that's when I contacted Heidi Sproul, and um, we got the self defense who who does help with the, you know, anti bullying part. So that. They, they need to say no. So, um, so, and then we have a youth program, which is uh, led by Dr. Mohanad Hakim. Um, so uh, he's amazing with the kids, uh, especially the because what I found was the teenagers they didn't like they didn't fit into anything. They didn't want to go to art, especially mm-hmm. the boys, and they didn't want to go to all this. So we have that separate going on for them as well. Um, we also have started with a preschool program because. When we have these family health days, what happens is the women are always with the, these kids, and we have this amazing yoga program, which they absolutely love. It's their their time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if when we start taking with the kids, they were so happy. They're like, "Here, so yeah, take them." Uh, exactly. So, <laughs> so what we uh, so Denise Johnson is um, a really good. Um, you know, she's actually a yoga um, instructor, but she she does the preschool program. Um, so what you're saying is, refugee parents are just like every other. Their parent everywhere. Just take, take the kids for a little while. <laughs> exactly. Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> um, we we have so at the same time when for the kids we have all this going on for adults. Um, Dr. Lamise Jabri does the women mental health. Um, the the women just absolutely love that uh, program. Uh, we have yoga by Shannon Cadwell and. Um, we Michigan State University usually has uh, the lecturers come um, for some kind of health um, education program. So it could be nutrition, it could be, um, you know, uh, uh, basically advocacy. You know how 
regarding harassment or, you know, bullying, especially adult bullying, especially with the new government, you know, we did the, um, the hate crimes and things like that, what they're supposed to do. So we had some lawyers come and talk to them about that as well. Um, we also started with um, dental screening uh, by Smile Connect. So uh, one of the things with the insurance is usually they, they get Medicaid. So uh, everything else is c- covered except the dental part. So uh, we really work with a lot of free dental care um, as well. So what we do, we do the screenings and then refer them outside uh, for the free dental care. Like Huda Clinic um, mm. is amazing as well. So um, mm. the, so we have wow. all that going on in like four to five hours. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is a lot. And I've, you know, on some of the group chats and stuff, I'm, always amazed like how much it's grown to in a short period of Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. This, this is one of those moments again where I was like, I watched Netflix yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did with my day. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so um, for all of you, I guess, you know, um, maybe we can start out with Reem, but how did you, you know, this kind of switching gears a little bit, but how did you feel and how do you respond now when you first, when you heard about or, you know, regarding basically the travel ban? you know, in effect, that's attempting to shut the door to accepting new refugees to the United States. And just kind of like this, um, this idea that refugees are a threat um, to American security and our freedoms and all that kind of, you know, rhetoric. So for me, it was um, a moment of disbelief. It was kind of like a shaking my head moment where I'm thinking to myself, if people really knew the facts, if people really understood the circumstances, nobody would support this travel ban. The, f- the, f- the real facts are that these refugees are victims of terror themselves. They're not terrorists. They're running from terror. Um, and actually a really interesting study that just came out from um, Cato Institute um, did an analysis, and the results were that your odds of being killed by a refugee terrorist attack here on American soil are one in 3.64 billion. Can anybody even fathom that number? I mean, that's just, why are we worrying about it? You know, they they also came out with a number and and said you have a 265% more of a chance of being killed by your American neighbor. So when you look at these numbers and you look at the facts and you look at the fact that not a single terrorist attack has um, has been done by a Syrian refugee, you wonder why all this rage is directed mm-hmm. at these people who have lost everything, who didn't choose to come here. They didn't choose to have their lives destroyed. If people could really understand what life was like for them, I think there would be a lot more sympathy. And I think there would be a lot more opposition to the travel ban. Yeah, I, th- I think we should have uh, we should have Sean DeFore on this show at some point. He's the vice president of Samaritas, and he was he was on my show a while ago. And he talked about this and he's like, you know, um, something people don't understand about immigration in general, especially refugee, uh, refugee status. One, it's hard to get refugee status. Two, you don't get a choice as to which country you go to, right? Um, sometimes you don't even get a, as far as I understand, you don't get a choice on which state to go to. You can request, but you, you're not guaranteed that. And with the idea of terrorists sneaking in among uh, the re- the good refugees, you can't keep the bad ones out at the same time. He said, you know, it's really hard to get in in the first place. Right. Like if right. you were going to infiltrate the United States as a terrorist, there are much easier ways to get in than trying to come in through the refugee Absolutely. program. That's probably you'd be the waiting last, a long time. Yeah, that'd be the last thing you'd want to do is go through that particular uh, door. And that, I mean, that's what he was saying. On, on that's actually on the show. a really, really interesting, really good point because a lot of people don't realize that refugees go up to two years of screening mm-hmm. processes. Yeah, and sometimes more. And they are the most securely vetted population entering the United States. And like you said, if I, you know, if I'm a terrorist and I want to do something, I'm not going to wait around two years not knowing where I'm going to end up. Yeah, I'm not going to um, go through official channels. Exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then another thing is that um, the United States is very, very selective in the refugees that they admit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So out of all of the refugee applications that they receive, they've only admitted 2% of them. And so they can be very, very selective. And if there's any kind of red flag during that screening process or any kind of question mark, that application is thrown away and they're moving on to the next family. And so uh, when you when you look at all of these facts, you just wonder why uh, the mainstream um, mm-hmm. media and the stereotyping is really perpetuating all of these 
negative and uh, negative ideas and all this misinformation about refugees. I think fear sells very, mm-hmm. very well. Right. I mean, you're not going to hear. I mean, I, I tell people this all the time. You're not going to hear about all the planes that land on time. In the news, anyway, well, every Delta flight landed on time today. Well, back to you uh, on the weather porch. Hey, it's sunny and ninety degrees. It's great. You're going to hear about the plane that crashed, right? Right. Uh, but yeah, when I think about this, I'm like, I, if if someone wanted to kill a lot of people, right? That's what a terrorist wants to do. I don't think they're going to be like, ah, I was going to kill a bunch of people, but it's going to be two year two year waiting process. So I have to put that on the back burner for a couple of years. Right. I, I just don't. It doesn't make any sense. But but fear sells well. It sells very well for people. So. And then it's, I mean, when it's coming from top down too, it's just yep. justifies a lot of, um, a lot of, well, fear and then what people were, I think, afraid to, I mean, they're just kind of more, everybody's more, um, and, oh my God, I'm forgetting the word. Well, <laughs> everybody's kind of just more emboldened um, to kind of verbalize, yeah. you know, I mean, we talk about the, that was one of the things, right? The vetting process. And it's like, oh, everyone just assumes that there's, there's. Exactly. People are just kind of streaming in. <laughs> I mean, if you could just compare our numbers to other countries, even Canada. Um, I mean, do you have any idea of how many refugees have entered Canada? Anybody know? Way more than us. Yeah. Way more <laughs> than Europe is way ahead. But I, it, the other the other thing is you're talking about the language barrier. And this, again, I'm just connecting dots here. I think a lot of people, especially in, um, let's be honest, in Michigan, the economy is not super great, right? And so the idea that, oh, you know, 2,000 refugees are coming in. That's 2,000 jobs that are not going to be available to, to people who are here already. But if you're coming in with a language barrier and it's hard to find a job, those fears, again, seem unfounded. Like, okay, like you got a huge advantage over this person who's coming in from, from Syria. Yeah, they might get a job. But at the same time, there's a language barrier. So as you're saying, it's hard for them to get a job. So there's not as much worry or I don't feel there should be as much worry on, on the part of people who look at it from the economic standpoint. Oh, I might not get a job if someone else is in the running. Actually, Calvin, that, that's a really important point um, is that people are worried that these refugees are going to take away jobs. When in fact, I think a lot of people don't realize that the United States has been uh, receiving refugees since 1971. They've resettled 3 million refugees. And a lot of it is a moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of it is actually pretty selfish. The reason that the United States wants to resettle all of these refugees is because they do bring economic benefits mm-hmm. to the United States. They do bring prosperity. And That's why we're so selective. It's like, it, okay, we'll take exactly. this guy who's really good at what he did back there, but not the guy who you know, lived in his mom's basement playing Xbox all day. <laughs> right, so. right, exactly. And it's one of the greatest revitalization strategies and one that doesn't cost tax dollars is to bring in these refugees. Interesting. So how can people get involved if they do want to help refugees um, here locally, but then also for some of our listeners, even if you have any ideas um, in other states, you know, as well? I know it's specific to state to state, but. So for um, over here, if you wanted to get involved with SARN, um, so many different ways. The first thing is uh, visit our website and there's a way you can join um, you know, how basically uh, volunteer. So you can uh, visit our website and enter your information if you wanted to be a volunteer. Um, like Facebook page, that's something that I always post about different volunteering opportunities. Um, cars. <laughs> <laughs> if you have cars, please, <laughs> we will, that would be super helpful. But um, uh, other volunteering opportunities, like we just had a bike drive, which was absolutely amazing, um, where um, – and then we had a person who could repair the bike. So people just – that uh, June 3rd was a bike drive and we got hundreds of bikes. Wow. Um, so And then whoever did, had a bike which wasn't uh, working, there was a person who was actually repairing right then and there and um, providing it to the uh, refugees. So um, – but jobs, I mean if you have any kind of jobs that you can offer um, – you know, that would be absolutely helpful because we cannot help them be self-sufficient unless they have um, a job. So um, and uh, basically um, there's an Amazon wish list on the website that you can help us out. We are struggling with uh, we do have uh, uh, single moms uh, the hus- whose, you know, the husbands have been killed in the war uh, with kids. Um, so some of those that cannot make um uh, their rental payments and um, the handicapped um, uh, families who have lost, you know, either limb during the war, you know. Then, um, so for them, we are struggling with the rent uh, and utilities. So that is another way. So if you donate to SARN, you can always write 
um, what you want to go, mm-hmm. it to go for. And um, we uh, do not have um, – we have very, very minimal overhead. All of us are just pure volunteers, even the board. So um, I can easily say – Close to 100%, you know, goes to the refugees. Uh, we don't have much of overhead at all. So, And I want to mention that we are a 501c3 mm-hmm. organization, so all donations are tax deductible. Uh, our website is www.sarn-us.org. And as Aisha mentioned, um, on our website or on our Facebook page is the best way to get in touch with us. And even simple drives, if somebody wants to spearhead a drive for hygiene items or cleaning supplies, those are things Toilet are, papers. Toilet paper, <laughs> diapers, shampoo, you know, diapers, all of diapers are expensive. They're expensive. Yeah. Detergent is expensive. So a lot of those items are they're, they're smaller items. You know, if you can't donate a car, maybe, you know, the Wayne State medical students, they had an underwear drive for our refugees. I said all sizes. Yeah. All so, <laughs> so that's interesting for other states. Um, Amazon. So you mentioned the Amazon wish list. Yes. So that's so, easy to do for anyone. Absolutely. Anywhere. And then Women's Physician for Humanity, www.wp4edge.org. Um, so, and of course, the Facebook page. So we do have a lot of different uh, women physicians in different states helping the refugees, like Atlanta and California and um, Connect, um, Rhode Island. So, uh, um, so, so many different states. Um, uh, that are part of the Women Physician for Humanity. So um, you can definitely visit us there and then find out how you can get involved with, for the other states. I think we have a – we still have a little time left, right? We could, we can, oh, there's a question that I wanted to ask. Just I find it interesting. I mean, again, most of this conversation has been uh, – you know, very just, you know, let's talk, let's talk about humanity, very, you know, secular uh, in nature. But uh, – at the same time, I do wonder right now, uh, all of you are Muslim American, you're in, in this time of Ramadan, right? And, and you know, I think that that's fantastic. Um, I come from a Christian background and so there's a lot of ways where we talk about, you know, how does your faith affect your day-to-day living? And so, so, so how does your faith affect the work that you're doing? You know, is that a, is that a driving impetus to, to help people who are coming in or is this purely a secular enterprise for you? Um, I don't know. It's it's for me. It's it's both. It's mm-hmm. for a lot of it for for humanistic reasons, mm-hmm. and of course, my faith encourages. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Humanistic, uh, like the best uh, deeds is serving others. Okay. Um, it's it's in the Quran, in the Hadith of the Prophet Muhammad. It's everywhere. Though the best of you are those who are serving others. So of course, the the religion is is big part of it. But also just like being human, connecting with other human, yeah. just being affected by, by other human suffering. I, I mean, how can you watch the news or watch those kids and, and suffering and, and being not do anything, not doing it. anything? Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how can like mm-hmm. I think this is the only healing for me for my suffering is to be able to do something. Excellent. Yeah. And that's how Women's Physician for Humanity was born was we actually saw the news. We saw the picture of Elon Kurdi on that beach. Mm. And, we, and we were, you know, we were like, we can't just just sit here and do nothing, even though we couldn't do anything for them over there. But, um, you know, it made me drive that, you know, I can't just sit there and watch and just, you know, cry over this. I have to do something to make a difference. And if I can't do over there, then um, definitely we'll do here. So that made me, when I started with SARN, when I was, um, as I said, as Reem mentioned, I was in the beginning founding um, um, member, board member. Um, after that, when I started helping out the refugees, um, everyone else is from Syria except I'm from India um, originally. So um, uh, that made me want to go to uh, the refugee camps. So that's when I went to um, Jordan through uh, Syrian American Ma- uh, Medical Society. Uh, which was uh, a life-changing experience, I should say. Um, it, and uh, I came back and I was like, um, these people here are very lucky to be here and I wish we could get every single one here. It was it was uh, one of my, it was a heartbreaking experience uh, just going to Jordan and seeing all these people in the refugee camps. And And I would say, yeah, Islam is just like any other religion pushes you to be a better person, you know, focuses on character development and, and pushes you to give back to those less fortunate. 
Um, and actually, our refugees are themselves also giving back because, as mm-hmm. uh, Lubna mentioned, it is a healing process. So they are going out there doing community services, volunteering, um, you know, serving those less fortunate in soup kitchens and, and Habitat for Humanity, things like that. So um, definitely this is a, uh, a human nature to see what other people are going through and want to be able to help. Um, and it's all about really sympathizing with individual stories and understanding their stories rather than dehumanizing everybody and just bringing it all down to numbers. Okay, very cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you want to add something? Yeah, I want to add something. Mm-hmm. That, but this is the, to the question before. It's just like um, you ask, how can people help? Mm-hmm. So Women for Humanity, we're trying to establish um, a scholarship program. We, we have a lot of scholarship programs overseas uh, for refugees who cannot afford, but we're trying to establish one here. So also that you can visit womenforhumanity.org and any like any help, any support can help in establishing this program for refugees who cannot afford to go to college. Um, mm. yeah. wow, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And actually, you did mention Syrian American Medical Society. Society. Yeah. Um, and then I know actually a friend of mine is going with Helping Hand organization in August. And that's interesting because it's like um, students can go to refugee camps. Um, in Jordan, um, like uh, college age. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of one of the mentors that's going along with them. So that's Helping Hand, I guess, Helping Hands yeah. or Helping Hand. They're, they're yeah, two hands. different organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot. There's a lot of ways. I mean, we're fortunate that there's so many ways that we can get involved and we can get. And I think what you're saying for sure, I mean, it's easy to become very, I mean, depressed and kind of dejected and feel just so hopeless when you're looking at the sheer numbers and mm-hmm. the plight and the enormity of the loss of life and everything, just total disruption and um, destruction. But I think if everybody took baby steps, then mm-hmm. we all can kind of make a difference. Absolutely. Definitely. So, wow. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. You're all busy um, mothers and have jobs and volunteering. And so I really, really appreciate your time. We really just wanted to kind of put a voice to, you know, um, to kind of this really important topic. And I'm really hoping that actually, hopefully I'm hoping to get some refugee families actually on as well um, in the future. Um, But thank you so much for giving your time and for being here today. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Thank Thank you you guys. And to our listeners, please just, um, you know, continuing, continue to listen. Um, We have quite a few episodes to catch up on, but you don't have to listen to them in any particular order. (laughs) I've noticed some people are doing that. They're like, I'm starting from the beginning. Like, it's okay. You can start anywhere. Um, But just, uh, you know, like our Facebook page. Uh, Eventually, I'll get an Instagram account Um, and follow, share. And I think the biggest thing is to just kind of share with um, friends and coworkers um, because we're really just trying to share and spread um, messages and examples of positivity. So thank you so much, everyone. Have a great week, and we'll be here next time with Unsung Heroes. But if you close your eyes, does it matter?